You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Jason Killings on the future state of pre-hospital care. What I wanted to do is examine the current state of the NHS ambulance services and how that's delivered within the UK. What I also wanted to do is look at the current models of operation and how that might evolve over the next 10 to 20 years and actually might need to be flipped on its head. So we're going to explore the numbers of see, treat and convey versus see, treat and refer versus telephone consult and close and how this can be flipped on its head. We're also going to explore the adage of modern technology and how can that, that can work to serve the needs of future patient care and also the progressive paramedic career framework and how this supports the potential referral pathways uh, of the future. We're also going to explore some of the innovations that Jason initiated to work towards this goal. Jason Killings is the Chief Executive of the Welsh Ambulance Service NHS Trust, also uh, the custodian of what is a national provider of 99111 and non-emergency patient transport services for Wales. So he spent his career working in the ambulance service throughout the UK and Australia, and he progressed through the ranks in London Ambulance Service from an emergency medical technician to Chief Director of Operations. He was appointed as the Executive Director for the South Australian Ambulance Service in 2015 before joining the Welsh Ambulance Service as the Chief Executive in September 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Jason, I wonder if we could just firstly look at your journey through the NHS to, to this current day. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you touched on uh, in the introduction, I joined the uh joined the NHS, joined the London Ambulance Service in uh, February 1996. It was the 26th of February 1996. I can remember my first day. I was 21. Um, And uh, after training as, um, well, it was a QAP then, but essentially an emergency medical technician, EMT now, um, I was posted to to East London uh, and I worked as a relief across East and North East London for a couple of years um so places like whips cross for those that are listening that are familiar with the geography whips cross Leighton, tottenham uh as far up as kind of uh, uh in north london up to enfield out to romford you know that kind of northeast quadrant um and uh, i did that probably for about four years uh, on the road and I, I came off the road and went and worked initially in the resource center um which was about you know placing uh crews colleagues uh to to shifts and i really enjoyed that um uh, and it kind of gave me an insight i guess into you know other roles within the organization um uh, and after a a short spell at edmonton as an assistant station officer i uh was promoted to um station officer um at 27 i went to deptford in southeast london uh, got a nosebleed as I went across the Thames uh, uh, to work in uh, in, in Deptford. Um, and I was there for a couple of years and went back to Hackney uh, as diff- same kind of job, but different title by then, Ambulance Operations Manager. So Homerton, uh, Hackney, City of London was the patch I had uh, then. Uh, and after a couple of years there, went into a, a, a kind of a, a regional role, I guess, which was a performance improvement manager job. Um Assistant Director for North East London in 2007, 2009. I went to 
headquarters, London Ambulance headquarters as Deputy Director of Operations. And then in 2013, as you said, was appointed uh, Executive Director of Operations. Did that for a couple of years and then left London with just about 20 years service um, and went overseas um, uh, and uh, was the Chief Executive of uh, one of the state ambulance services in Australia uh, for three years. Uh, which was, you know, good fun. Uh, did all the expat stuff, you know, barbecues, lived near the beach, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then came back to the NHS weirdly because I missed it um, uh, in uh, in September two thousand eighteen. I've been here in Wales for just about five years now as the chief exec here. So twenty what twenty seven years in the in the ambulance sector, three services, three different countries. Uh, loved every minute of it. Um, not a boring day amongst the lot. So what I'm going to do is look at the ambulance service and, and look at sort of how we deliver care and, and how this might need to flip and change. But just before we do, I, I guess a personal question around your leadership, Jason, and sort of how maybe sort of you've changed as a CEO and leader over the, over the past five years, because I think in your role and in sort of senior leadership you, you, the, the the transparency and oversight is far greater so you, you get you get visibility into a lot more aspects than you might do out on the road and indeed that might change and indeed i'd be interested to know if that if that has sort of changed your perspective indeed as a person and as a leader yeah uh, i i would say um dramatically uh i mean i wouldn't necessarily put a five-year window on it um but uh, I mean, if I think back now to, you know, some of the things I was doing and thinking, you know, when I was director of operations in London, you know, I mean, I've said this, I've said this openly before, you know, there were some, there were some decisions and choices that we made back then, you know, in the mid, mid 2010s um, that I look back on now and think, well, you know, would I do those things now? Um no is the answer um, now of course the circumstances were different in the context you know you're operating in but but there are things which uh circumstances I, I think i would i would definitely act differently in and do do things differently i mean i think if i think about you know what i'm doing here now in this role for five years and what i was doing as a you know my first appointment as a chief exec in in australia in 2015 i'm you know very different um uh i think you know your your uh you know we, we all mature don't we every day is a school day i mean you know we, we're all learning something every day and i do you know genuinely believe that's true um so as time has gone on we become i think more mature more kind of measured in our choices and the decisions we make certainly in the leadership space um i think the other one i mean i think about a previous chief exec that i worked for in london um who shall remain nameless. Um, but um, I, I can remember conversations about, you know, being authentic, uh, being yourself um, and, uh, you know, letting people, those which you work with um, kind of in, you know, letting them in a bit, um, being more personable. And that, that I found quite difficult back, you know, 20, mid, mid, mid 20s, you know, 2015, uh, you know, kind of in that time period. Now, um, I suppose, as you know, someone who's perhaps more confident, more settled in what I'm doing, more, more, um, more aware across a range of things, you know, that, that that is certainly easier. So, I think I've, you know, changed, matured, uh, got a different perspective on things. Part of that is the role. Part of that is the job and the role you're in. Um, 
part of that is our you know ongoing learning every day and i think you know the other part of it is um is about how we mature you know and how we change as people over time and i would i would agree with that and i i would say in a senior leadership now myself and having like you said matured to to a place where become a little bit more conservative far more um willing to take other people's opinions but also just be a little bit more slower in the approach so to to gather information and and but absolutely agree to that point jason just flipping the conversation slightly and looking at the current state of activity um one of the elephants in the room from an ambulance service perspective is and and everyone knows this um whether it's verbalized or not is that i would say upwards of 90 percent of post care is primary care and and, you know that really has been a a gradual but incremental and and then exponential shift over the past few years and 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 that's no surprise to anyone working out on the road or dealing in in pre-hospital care and and that tees me up for this question around the current state of activity because because it is primary care and n- still complex there's complex patient needs um could you could you maybe speak to what you see and indeed the, these domains around sort of c treat and convey versus c treat yeah. and refer versus telephone consult yeah. could you speak to that yeah sure so look i mean look, you know I, i'm known for somewhat controversial views so let me just put this caveat on, on on what i'm about to say you know so i don't expect everyone to agree that's listening you know i don't expect everyone that's listening to agree with 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 what i say here but um you know over the last you, know, we, we, you and i have seen this you know and, and many many people listening to this podcast that work in the sector both here in the uk and internationally will recognize this picture which is that over the last 10, 20, 30 years, the way our communities use their emergency ambulance services has shifted significantly. Um, the expectation of immediacy in terms of you know provision of response, not just for the really sick patients that we go to, but but all the other stuff as well. Um, uh, there's been changes obviously in how people can access uh, you know care in communities. Primary care is difficult to access, um, uh, as we all know. So the way our services have used have changed. Our populations have got older, uh, generally speaking, you know, sweeping generalisation, but generally our populations, the communities we're serving are older. Um, uh, accessing primary care has got harder and we've got more work because we've got a growing population. So activity is increasing year on year. And there are also shifts in the type of activity or the acuity of activity we're seeing. Um, now, now, I would say, um, somewhat controversially perhaps, um, that the current model of ambulance service delivery, certainly here in the UK, which is largely sweeping generalisation again, largely we get a 999 call, we listen to what's going on, we decide how important it is and we go to scene. That's largely what we do. Yeah, That's been happening for 50 years. Um, and I would say that the current model of service delivery is, is unsustainable. Um, it's not affordable, it's unsustainable. Uh, it creates risk. I mean, we'll probably come on to kind of managing risk in in the conversation, but but in trying to service everything quickly, um, you know, we create risk in, in itself, clinical risk. Um, so I think for a range of reasons, those that I've just kind of, I guess, articulated and the state of the urgent and emergency care system, certainly here in the UK, particularly where we've got, you know, regions with extensive 
uh, emergency department handover delays, which you know generate uh, that additional pressure uh, and community delay. Uh, where there is significant avoidable harm and, and clinical risk, let alone all the issues it creates for our people. Um, in that environment, uh, I, I would say, and we certainly would say here in the service in Wales, that we have to dramatically change, um, you know, truly transform the way we deliver care to our communities. And, and whilst you know we've fiddled around the edges with hear and treat, see and treat, see, treat and convey, consult and close, whatever you want to call it. Um, those are relatively small numbers in the in the scheme of the total uh, total activity we see. So so our vision, you know, for the next three to five years here uh, is essentially to flip the service model on its head. Um, now, you know, again, these are you know, sweeping kind of numbers, if you like, but they just just share these numbers to kind of, I guess, try and articulate um, the scale of the challenge. If you said that currently we respond to about eighty percent of the of the work we get, roughly, yeah, um, that will vary across services. It will vary within services by region. But if you just said roughly, we go to eighty percent of the work we get. Our view is that in the future. Uh, we would only go to 20% of it, you know, straight away. So we'd go quickly and we you know, we would guarantee a quick response to all of the work, which we all know needs a quick response. Cardiac arrest, chest pain, stroke, cardiac chest pains, not all chest pains, cardiac chest pain, strokes, car crashes, all that stuff, you know, we, we would go to and go to quickly in that 20% bucket. Everything else, uh, our view uh, is that we would not turn a wheel uh, we would not seek to respond uh, until it's had an upstream clinical assessment. That's not just by paramedics in our contact centres. That would be nurses. It might be, um, and some services are doing this already, mental health specialists. You might have pharmacists in there, a whole range of kind of uh, clinicians, a multidisciplinary team, either employed by the ambulance service or that we access through arrangements with other providers, other health providers, um, and then only if we can't close that episode of care safely upstream with a clinical assessment, either on the phone or increasingly with video, you know, with a video consultation, if we can't safely close or refer that episode of care somewhere else, would we then go to scene? And if we did need to go to scene and it wasn't in that 20%, you know, in that really sick bucket, it would be with an advanced practitioner where we'd seek to close the episode of care in the community. Um because I, I just don't think it's sustainable to continue to respond with a double-staffed you know, emergency ambulance to all of the activity we've got. Um, so, yeah, we've got quite, a, I guess you could, some might say, radical view um, about the future. Uh, but what's clear is the current model just cannot continue. Um, it's, it's not safe uh, to carry on uh, with what we've got as an approach. So I completely agree, actually. And so we use AMPDS out here um, in Canada, but the, it's AMPDS is, is used in the UK and nothing, there's there's no, there's no attribution of blame to that, but it, it, it isn't a nuanced tool. It's a tool, it's a, it, it's a tool, it's been historically used, but that almost creates the, the demographics of work because that that's the categorization tool there there is uh, an over triage in bill and it's you know empirically proven but actually to your point it's not nuanced and it's not and actually when you dig deeper into a lot of these cores there is these 
these these details that you actually you find out on scene actually it isn't it, it's not as categorized but also putting that upstream saves saves these resources now again we'll talk about risk shortly and how we stratify risk but but why is here in treat um coming to the fore versus this face and face to face consultation yeah well look i mean we know don't we i mean you, you again in your your introduction to the session you know you 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 indicated you know we our colleagues across emergency ambulance services or ems services you know not just in the uk but internationally too uh, are, are going to an increasing amount of you know social primary care complex you know long-term conditions not stuff that would be traditionally in the emergency ambulance space um and of course as 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 the skills education uh and knowledge of our workforce has changed over time um you know who'd have thought 10 years ago we'd have paramedics prescribing you know yeah yeah uh, it's a really good example. Who'd have thought ten years ago uh, that we'd have had paramedics out there with FP10 pads, you know, writing out prescriptions? Um, but we do. You know, we were the first here in the UK to put them on the streets. But you know, lots of services have gotten now. Um, so with those kind of changes, not only in in our workforce and the stuff we can do, but also in in our connection to the rest of the health system. So for argument's sake, ten years ago we wouldn't have been able to see a GP patient record. Well, we can now. You know, and a, and a crew, uh, you know, a clinician uh, in a in a clinical contact centre upstream can can look into a patient's you know GP record and see a whole bunch of stuff to inform their their judgment that we just couldn't see five or ten years ago. Um, so with those advancements in the, you know those changes that are available to us, we're able to do different stuff um, and 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 manage treat respond however whatever you want to call it differently uh to cohorts of work which traditionally we'd have had to go to scene for um so there is there is quite a lot of scope we think um in in in, in our overall bucket of activity which enables us to um you know differentiate that based on the evidence based on clinical evidence not just the mpds determined or the pathways equivalent you know but but what we actually see when we get on scene and of course now with most services having an electronic patient record we're able to interrogate that data uh much more rigorously um than we were when we were all on paper with you know uh, prfs um I'll show my age now or LA4s as it was when I joined, you know, a single A4 bit of paper. Um, um, you know, we, we, we've got much better intelligence now. So we can we can um, use that information, use that intelligence to redefine how we uh, safely respond to patients. It makes sense. Yes, there's there's a load of stuff which is very different now to to ten years ago, which enables us to 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 have a very different approach to 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 the work we do. It does make sense, and it's it's multifactorial. Like you said, the education's caught up, the yeah. um the the workload has ever increased, and it's almost forced, I think, our hands to to look at different ways in which we in which we operate. Uh, Technology has improved, and we'll go there in a second. One of the things I'd like to go, uh, one of the areas I'd like to go is managing risk, actually, uh, Jason, and look at what perceived risks you you foresee in this sort of flip model of care. Well, look, I mean, I think the starting point has to be that there is risks in not changing the model of care. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I talk about my own service here, you know, because I 
and with authority on it. But, you know, I know this is a similar picture across many services in the UK. Um, but, you know, we are holding, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly holding work that, that, that we're unable to respond to. So these are emergency calls. You know, none of this is a secret. It's it's well known. Um, you know, that can get in some services up to a couple of hundred deep. Um, we've certainly seen that here. I know in, you know, when when I was in London, we would see that. You're familiar with that from, from when you were there as well. Um, and sometimes these patients are waiting a very long time. And these are sick patients waiting a very long time. You know, patients that we'd be looking to get to in, you know, 14, 15, 20 minutes. You know, we're, we're waiting hours. Um, so there is already risk in what we're seeing and doing now. Yeah. Um, and avoidable harm. I mean, let's be clear about it. You know, there is avoidable harm happening now uh, in our communities because we're unable to respond in a timely fashion. So seeking to service the activity in the way we do now is not without risk. Um, that said, I, I do accept that, you know, with any change and transition, of course, there is risk in the change. Um, but what we can do is mitigate all that risk because we can, you know, we can do it through improvement cycles. We can look at the evidence increasingly, you know, as we've just touched on with with electronic case cards, with connected healthcare records between primary care uh, and and uh, and acutes and so on, you know, the single patient records, we can actually see what's going on. So the, the, the risk is more manageable, I would say, in, in a transition um, it, it, or through the transition to change. And if we use the data we've got now in a smart and intelligent way to inform the choices we make about how, what we change and how we change it, um, arguably, um, you know, that, that risk is is diminished. So uh, doing nothing is not without risk. Actually, doing nothing is not without significant risk because it's there already. Um, so so I, I, I'm not I'm not persuaded by an argument that says don't change because there's risk in it. Well, yeah, there is. I accept that. But we can manage it. But what we were all what we're all struggling to manage is the is the day to day risk, which is um, which we know is there. So looking at, uh, I fundamentally agree with that, actually, and and managing the current risk um, is, is it, like you said, it's starting to become offset by the fact we can mitigate this with modern technology, with advances in technology. So a lot more face-to-face, -face, well, not face-to-face, -face, but digital consultation yeah. through through platforms and, and, and start to give the clinicians in the control room much more of a feel, a gestalt, being sort of a whole whole body review um of of what is happening with the patient and even now within the good sam app and other apps you know you can start to get assessed respiratory rate pulse rate um right. color of you know mottling or yeah. diaphoresis could you could you could you maybe speak to how technology is it is and will support this flip model of care yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I will talk to technology. The other point I, I just want to perhaps touch on here as well is about our people. Um, so, so the impact of doing nothing or changing on on our workforce, on our people, on our clinicians, uh, and not just clinicians, but colleagues in contact centres and, and those in corporate roles too. So, um, you know, we know, don't we, that our people are deeply frustrated at the moment because many of them can't do the job they joined for because they're, you know, subject to delays at emergency departments because of uh, pressure across urgent emergency care. We're contributing to that because we're taking a whole load of patients to the ED that arguably could be safely dealt with in some other way. Um, 
And of course, we know, you know, those delays at EDs means missed rest breaks, late finishes, frustration, skill decay, a whole load of stuff um, starts to emerge from that. So uh, there is a duty on us as well, I think, to change, to improve the workplace experience for our people. Um, uh, and of course, in that, in, in this kind of future model that I'm describing with people with our people operating at the edge of their practice or their scope of practice, you know, we're, we're, we're empowering our clinicians to use the education and the skills that they've got. Um, yeah. So, 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 so the workplace experience for our people, our individual clinicians is better as well. Um, but on, on, uh, on technology, um, I mean, I'd just give a couple of examples here. You know, most places have got personal issue tablets now for their staff. That's not just about, uh, yeah, that's not just about electronic case cards uh, or, or patient reporting. As you know, as I've said, you know, the, the clinicians are using those to access patient care records from primary care or a single patient record, dependent on where they are. Um, uh, we see opportunities for wearables. Um, you know, so so there's a whole load of uh, healthcare information in your in your Apple Watch or Fitbit or whatever it is that you know you've got. Well, how, how can we get hold of that? How, what 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 in the next few years? You know, could we be in a position where you know where we're seeing that trending of of um, of basic um, kind of diagnostics? which will, again, inform a clinician's judgment about how they can treat a patient. Um, you mentioned video technology. You know, who would have thought five years ago we'd be having a video consultation with a patient in the street or or in their front room? You know, so so things are constantly evolving and changing, and we need to find, we need to exploit the opportunities that technology, you know, ever in, ever in, I guess, changing and improving technology gives us in our sector, Um and it's not just about I don't just think it's about sexy toys for our people to have. You know, it's it's about how we can access information about patients, clearly with their consent, um, that informs the judgment of our clinicians and how we can um, how we can respond, treat, uh, manage uh, an episode of care rather than simply respond to scene and convey the patient to the emergency department. So something in your model, uh, Jason, is is around and is does is, is notion towards, but is very much a central piece. And one thing, one of my revelations is that actually alternative care pathways in the past, we heavily relied on external agencies to facilitate these pathways to make sure they worked. And the rare limiting steps were if they didn't work and, and you know, GPs were overwhelmed, refer um uh, occupational health or rehabilitation services, COPD services were overwhelmed. The, the pathway didn't work. Yep. One of the things I'm realizing now is with a single point of care model is that, and the ambulance services uh, has had this revelation as well, is that if you employ those colleagues within within a a, so a digital dispatch room so it doesn't even need to be a physical one it could be a, a meta dispatch room it could be sitting in their front room but absolutely right it's essentially working for an ambulance service so that the safeguard and the risk can be mitigated through technology so yeah. i could have a face-to-face -face with you as a gp employed for the welsh ambulance service say yeah. look i've got i've got this patient here x y and z but so 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 actually the integration so, so the rate limiting step isn't isn't the non-functioning of a referral pathway because we've integrated those clinicians so that we can stratify risk. But also to your point, Jason, around 
what we started to do is see these urgent care ambassadors, so these, these, these level seven MSC trained, masters yeah. trained clinicians, which can also risk stratify with paramedics. So you, you on scene could talk to me in the control room. I might be an urgent care practitioner. And there's, there's that level of safeguarding as, uh, as, as well. And that never used to happen. That, that right. internal governance piece. Absolutely right. So, you know, I mean, the, 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 um, the, 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 upstream benefit of of that senior clinical decision making and or support you know should shouldn't be underestimated because it's not it's not about disempowering clinicians on the streets or or, or where they respond but as you say where there's a you know a tricky job or, or one they're not too sure about they've got they've got you know that ability to reach back reach back into the center and you know talk to the, the to the to the mental health specialist or the advanced paramedic practitioner or whoever it is um that's 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 in the contact center who they need to uh, get advice from to to i guess you know confirm what what they're doing uh, your your point about you know remote working you know we, we've got clinicians now working uh, uh, in the remote environment uh, away from our contact centres. I mean, you flippantly said in their front rooms, but we've yeah you know, we've been having we've got it. Um, who'd have thought that you know t- three years ago uh, pre pre pandemic that wouldn't have been a thought that would have necessarily entered our mind. So you know we can access different types of. Uh, uh, clinicians or support now that we couldn't have been able to really access easily before because uh, we'd have had to have taken the patient to that clinician where we can deal with the yeah, we can do that remotely now um uh, and of course it's better for our people as well because if you, know, you think about flexible working opportunities to work differently different hours different places in a different way um it, it's great for our people too so looking at, you know, I think you've already noted towards the risks if we don't change. And I, I think the risk if we do not change and adapt is that we disempower, disengage and dissuade a, a large number of people from even entering the profession yeah. in, in the first place. Because like you said, from a grassroots perspective and even indeed from a perceptorship and a mentorship, uh, we, unless we have an agile ambulance service which is willing to change with the times and 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 stream patients in different ways and mitigate risk then you're not going to encourage people you're not going to encourage people to come into the profession in in, in the first place so I, I i take your earlier point and and very much agree with it that the risk to not changing is greater than the risk to the current operating model yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean the, the other thing i'm yeah, the other thing we should reflect on on people on our workforce is you know that the 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 mix of our workforce is very different now. Um, you know, 10, 20 years ago it was largely male dominated. Well, it's you know 50-50 there or thereabouts in terms of gender balance now. Um uh a lot of our people are coming direct entry through the university route. That wasn't happening 20 years ago. Um, you know, it was a vocational entry pathway. Um people 20 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, you know, would join a service and probably stay with a service for a long time. That was because, you know, then ambulance services were the sole employers of paramedics and emergency medical technicians. Well, that's not the case anymore, is it? You know, there, there's competition. We're in a marketplace. You know, we operate in a marketplace now. And rightly, you know, our people uh, spend a lot of time studying um to acquire the knowledge and skills that they've got um and they're gonna you know they're gonna move around the marketplace aren't they you know to canada or to australia uh you know so so um 
you know, so so we're we're in a marketplace. We have to be attractive and competitive, and part of that attraction is to work in a place, you know, where clinicians, where our people can use the skills that that you know and, and the knowledge that they've acquired to to to, to the max. And um, I would offer that simply sending an emergency ambulance with a paramedic and someone else to a scene and conveying a patient to an emergency department doesn't offer that opportunity for our people to stretch and grow. Um, so there's a whole load of benefits, I think, in in a in a quite a dramatic change to how we do it. So, you know, as a, an adaptive service and flexible and indeed looking into the future, Jason, you know, you, you've just appointed or just about to appoint, you know, director of paramedicine yeah. within the within the um, service. And could you could speak to how that might influence the, the trajectory of change? as opposed to maybe a medical director or indeed just how how you've come to that decision and, and what that might do for for the future of paramedicine yeah so look um so so we've had a director of paramedicine on our balls here for uh, probably about two years now just over two years um yeah, a couple of other services in the uk have have paramedics in director roles now um but but we, we've got a director of paramedicine um uh so we've got a director responsible for nursing quality and safety currently got a medical director but i'll come to that in a second um the reason that the board took the view uh that we wanted to have a director of paramedicine was simply around um uh, a triumvirate of of kind of clinical leadership so a doc a nurse and and a, and, and a paramedic but also because we are different to other health institutions, other health organisations, in as much as you know our workforce are green shirt people. They're, they're paramedics, they're emergency medical technicians, they're um, they're, they're other clinical grades uh, out in our communities. Um, and it felt right for us that the prof- the profession had matured, developed, progressed, whichever language you want to use, uh, over the last fifteen or so years post-registration uh, to the point where they could increasingly become masters of their own destiny you know we were less reliant on medical doctors you know medical dominance if you like we were less reliant on that uh, because our own we had our we've got our own people that are sufficiently experienced and educated to be able to step into that role uh, so we appointed uh, Andy Swinburne who's our director of paramedicine here uh, just about two years ago I think um uh, and we've now taken the step where uh, when our medical director uh, retires at the end of this calendar year, I'm not going to get another medical director. Um, uh, our clinical leadership here uh, will be provided by Andy as director of paramedicine and Liam uh, as our as our nurse. Now, yeah, we'll still have access to docs when we need them um, and we'll still have you know docs in, in the organisation. But what we won't have uh, is a doctor as a medical director on our board. Uh, and I won't have a, a a doctor as part of my leadership team, part of the executive leadership team. So, you know, a clear signal for me um, that, you know, paramedics can rise to senior leader, clear, senior clinical leadership roles if that's what they want to do. Um, uh, and, that you know, we think uh, the profession has matured enough to a point where it's, you know, safe to do that. Um, so we'll be the first ambulance service in the UK not to have a para, a, a medical director um yeah that's brave you know again you know as with all these choices it's not without risk uh but it feels like the right thing to do 
And to your point, actually, you know, and uh, Andy Swinburne as a, a fantastic clinician himself, you know, come through the ranks, appreciated the the, the job from the from the ground up, being a, a jobbing paramedic um, through through the ranks. But but is like you said, a a real focus of uh, attention so that people can, like you said, migrate, progress, and in, indeed um, attain. A, uh, a role as a director of paramedicine so that there is that, that established pathway and and like i said an, an appreciation having met andy swinburne myself you know he's he's been in senior leadership positions for a number of years now so he's got an appreciation of risk um and an appreciation of of the, of the global picture so it's it's having that exposure to leadership um early on or indeed uh, through your career so that so that you can come to it because as you said earlier jason i think as, as you progress as a person and as a clinician i think y- you tend to become a little bit more conservative as as as, as, as you go a little a little bit less quick to act m- more keen to listen and to read the room appropriately and i think that that probably maps across different domains of leadership as well so it's fantastic to see, and it's aspirational for other services that have got their eyes on on you. As we as we come to close, there's just a couple of more questions. One would be oh. around rate limiting steps, and just what 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 do you see foresee? Because one of the things we've pointed to in this in this um, interview, Jason, is that we have to be the masters of our own domain in ambulance services. We we are or, or we are interconnected with with other services, and we'll never get away from that. But fundamentally, there has to be a locus of control, an internal locus of control. And um, could you could you speak to some of the wider rate limiting steps that you see that constrain other ambulance services and how they can maybe mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I agree with what you said there. You know, increasingly we have to um, uh, find ways to. Um, respond uh and safely manage all of you know, the, the, a broad church of the activity we see uh, on our own we, we always will be should be uh increasingly connected as part of the health system you know we, we we've straddled the emergency services bit don't we but most of our work is in the single patient episode healthcare kind of space so so we increasingly need to be connected to the rest of the the, the system uh healthcare system and social care actually as well uh, that's probably a whole nother topic um so so rate limiting factors i think uh are around workforce you know so most services particularly in the uk not so much in australia and new zealand but certainly in in the uk are carrying large numbers of vacancies you know attrition is relatively high um you know for all the reasons some of the reasons we've discussed already in this session you know about the workplace experience for people opportunities in the rest of the nhs uh, and so on um so so there's you know there is a rate limiter i think in supply of people um i think there's a rate limiter in the willingness uh of healthcare systems to change radically enough um uh, and and take risk but you know managed and calculated risk back to the point we said earlier that doing nothing is also risky um so i think i think there's a there's a you know a rate limiter in in uh in in the vision uh that that a, 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 a vision that people are coalesced around for, for for what the future looks like um and I suppose the other one, you know, is clearly an obvious one at the moment, which is um, which is around the need for investment. You know, so so um, improvement in outcomes and improvement in uh, in, in care, um, you know, uh, 
patient experience is going to need investment. Now, that's not to say that, you know, if if we change our service model, we're really clear that, you know, if, if we if we succeed in the vision that we have here uh, to flip the service model on its head, ultimately that saves the healthcare system money. Uh, because we manage patients safely in the community. They don't get conveyed. They don't get admitted. They're not stuck in a bed. You know, we haven't got all the bed blocking and access, but all that stuff goes away or a lot of that stuff goes away. Um, so investment upstream in the pre-hospital space can save uh, secondary care, you know, quite a lot of cash. Um, but 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 all the time there is pressure uh, and, you know, very extreme pressure in some places uh, in secondary care, particularly in urgent emergency care, it's difficult to get that investment out. It's difficult to get that money out. So a rate limiter for for, for success, uh, you know, in in a radical change in the pre-hospital space uh, is is investment. So it's probably yeah, it's three or four things in that um, uh, that, that kind of uh, come together. Uh, to make rapid change, you know, hard. So as we come to to, to a close, Jason, is there, is there any sort of take home messages you'd like to um, to sort of give to to listeners? Uh, just around maybe if 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 there is listeners that are trying to progress and or enact change, um, and or see the the the, the changes that the Welsh Amulet Service and and that the board and indeed yourself are making, could you could you maybe speak to some take home messages to that that you would would uh, infer to to sort of facilitate that change? Yeah, um, so probably a couple of things I'd say. I mean, look, you know, you be true to yourself. So, you know, I this is going to sound a bit corny, but, you know, I joined 20, what, seven years ago to help people. Um, uh, and I still believe that now. You know, I believe, I believe, that's what I do. You know, I believe now that you know, every day I come to work or I get involved in something, you know, I'm doing it because I'm trying to make it better for people. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean we always get it right because we don't. You know, um, a part of the leadership challenge is to put your hands up and say when you've got it wrong. And that's OK. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I'd say be true to yourself. Remember why you joined, which is to help people in most cases. Um, uh, I have a bit of a kind of a mantra, I suppose, where I, I, I kind of say when, when people ask me this, I say I, I, I lead. I feel like I lead by conviction. So what I mean by that is I do what feels right. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, every when you when you decide in, or make a choice, inevitably, you're going to upset some people. Yeah. That's just going to be the case. Um, but but when, when I when I make a choice, um, I do it because I believe it's right for the majority of, of the people involved. Now, that might be staff, it might be our people, it might be patients, it might be a mix of all of those. Um, so you've got to do what you believe to be right, I think. Remember why you joined, do what you believe to be right. Um, uh, don't be afraid to to try new stuff, take some risk, you know. Um, uh, and I guess the fourth one, the final one probably, you know, would be, you won't always get it right and that's okay just say so um you know just say you got it wrong uh but importantly put it right you know understand why it went wrong and put it right um so you know three or four things i guess there that are you know relatively basic but i think important to hang on to and it's easy for those to be missed or for you, you to forget those when you get into the heat of battle with you know with competing demands and uh pressure from uh, from stakeholders, commissioners, 
staff unions those you work with you know it's difficult for some of those things to to hang on to some of those things fantastic that's fantastic thank you jason thank you for your time today and just your reflections thank you you're listening to the pre-hospital care podcast on the medics academy network 